verses 1 through 10. Uh, you can find on page 2 of your bulletin or on the screen above you. Titus 2, 1 through 10. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to too much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening. My name's Glenn. I serve as one of the pastors and uh, am glad to be able to be with you. I am every week. And so uh, thank you for your faith in coming here and being here. Let's pray. God, we thank you most of all that you're with us. Um, I thank you just for the joy that we have in being in one another's presence. And Lord, uh, we come to this text, which is not an easy one in our day and age, uh, not an easy one to see your beauty in, but you are the way, the truth, and the life. And you are the glorious and beautiful one. And so we pray that you would open the eyes of our heart in Christ's name, amen. So we are studying a letter from a mentor to a mentee, from a mentor to a mentee on how to establish healthy churches. And last week, Will uh, pointed out that that phrase, sound doctrine, really could mean healthy doctrine because the Bible's understanding is that uh, what you believe and who you become are just bound together, bound together. And so uh, that was particularly a challenging thing in this context, the original audience in the island of Crete, which was uh, notorious in its day and talked about by ancient historians as being corrupt and violent and really sort of a sin city. So it may not be a surprise to us that Paul uh, reverses his normal order. When Paul writes a letter, he typically starts by telling us all the stuff that God has done before he tells us what we should do. He tells us about God's gracious provision, his mercy, and then says, let me show you now how that becomes the basis and the motivation for how you would live and change. But this time he goes straight into character education, straight into moral education. And it might be because of what they were facing there. And uh, he applies then 
this idea of grace-shaped character to the members that would have been in a typical ancient household. Older men, older women, younger men, wives. He mentioned husbands as he was talking about elders the first week, and then bond servants or slaves. We'll get to last. And so uh, I want to break this reflection on godly character into gender, which in this day and age uh, is not an easy thing to do because um, it comes with certain suspicion and resistance and, and not for uh, good reasons, or rather for good reasons, uh, because of the past and present inequities that have existed and do exist between genders. And so uh, there's a certain hesitation that our culture has. Um, and I hope what we'll see is this. Uh, the scripture is actually avoiding two errors. The one is simply setting forth whatever culture there is of the day as the standard of God. That is, the scripture is not just going to set forth here traditional culture and say, this is what God wants from everybody. Yet at the same time, it avoids the error that I would say modern America is in, and that is where we flatten out and erase any gender distinction. I'd said the first week that it was Jesus himself, the great advocate of all people, Jesus himself who had a company of strong women with him and honored his own mother. It was Jesus who said God created male and female after his image. And that image is glorious. And so Jesus would teach us that we actually deprive ourselves of a glory God has in maleness and femaleness we can tend to overcorrect. And that is a challenge as well. Uh, let me put it this way. Uh, when you're looking at a beautiful painting or hearing a beautiful song or looking at a wonderfully made constructed building, um, it's not just simply self-expression. It's self-expression within form, right? That's how the beauty works together. It's self-expression within a form. Uh, a really uh, wise teacher, Kate Harris, who I think still lives in this area, spoke to our church some years back and she was talking about calling and said calling really is a combination of two things, constraint and creativity. Right? All of us have constraints in our lives. As much as Americans want to believe we're completely free and expressive, it's really a small group of Americans that would be getting, believe that. The truth is, all of us have constraint, and it's within that that God creates beauty. Even within the constraints of gender, which I'm not going to define. Because that in of itself is too complex. Right? So, but where we're going to start, actually, is with men... And, you know, I struggled over, I was going to say a few good men, right? And then next week, a few good women, but I was, 
you know, that was just like, so I just said, good men, and next week it'll be good women. The first two chapters that we went in, it was really like good leaders, and last week what Will preached on was bad leaders, right? So we're very much kind of looking at this lens together. So, older, that's where we're going to start. Older men, what's the vision? And, and if you are not an older man here, that's most of you. Maybe as you hear this, uh, you can think about the older men in your life. And uh, maybe there's something that you'll afterward want to go to them and, and commend them for. Or something where you would say, hey, I see something in you. Or maybe you'll feel led to say, hey, listen, I heard this past, and you're nothing like it. <laughs> Just wanted to let you know. Uh, but you might want to pray about that. So uh, I was reading an article that was a blog off a TED talk, and it was basically on what is the experience of being older, growing older in different parts of the world, right? Because it's good for us to realize culturally that's just a different thing. Um, and virtually, I would say every other culture other than current American culture, uh, there is an honor afforded those that are older, right? I mean, it shows up in language, suffixes, in Hindi, African language, Asian language that shows honor. There's certain, in some cultures, powers that are believed that elderly have. Certain foods that only they are allowed to eat. There's this idea of we're acknowledging that you growing older isn't something to despise, but something to see uh, reverence and beauty and something commendable in. Uh, I think American culture is probably one of the hardest cultures to grow old in no matter what culture you come from. Because uh, often in America, age is just the butt of a joke, right? That's the way it's sort of played out. And, and what happens too, I think the elderly uh, just kind of then just get into self-depreciation along that lines, right? Just kind of play along and, you know, that's much of the, the stereotype we see in movies and media. And so the temptation, if you are older, is to just sort of check out, to believe that there's not a usefulness if you're an older man in this culture. Remember, we're talking just about men this week. We'll talk about older women next week. Um, I thought this quote was good. In the latter years of life, especially for men, it can be filled with regrets a sense of uselessness or worthlessness, feelings of despair, self-absorption, or even a tendency to relax more standards because of old age. However, Paul desired for the older men what he desired for himself. As he approached the end of life, to have fought the good fight, to have finished the race, to have kept the faith. And that's why, you know, I had that Old Testament passage read. I just love that. Those of you that are familiar with Israel and the story, you remember when they had two spies, right, that were sent to spy out the land, and one was Caleb. And a lot, the other spies that went were just had no faith, and they got everybody afraid and said, there's no way we can take the land. But here you have fast forward 40 years later, and Caleb's waiting for his inheritance, but it's going to mean they're going to have to conquer some people. And there he says, look at me. 
I'm 85, I'm just as strong as I was back then. Joshua, give me the okay to go and take that land. Now Joshua could have easily smiled. Joshua was, was, was a, a strategist, he was a military man. If he thought it wasn't true, he would have said, listen, I, we honor you, but you can't do that. But he looked at him and said, go do it. So it was a very different view, right, than we have in our current culture. Now let me play the other side for a second. I once heard a, um, a pastor preach on retirement, and I think he did a thing that has been done before for dramatic effect, and he said, you know, today I'm going to preach on retirement. And then he said, and I want to preach on what the Bible says about retirement. <laughs> Nothing! I don't think it's that, because the Bible does say that there are blessings of old age. You know, there's certain blessings of, of uh, fruit from working, and, spend, and, and that, I think, also is in play. But it's not, Caleb is not asking for a hammock and a home on a golf course, right? He's not asking for just that. He's not asking just to live for his grandchildren, even though they have an influence. This passage calls older men to usefulness and leadership primarily, and this is different than our culture, through character, through character. Because there's a lot of supposed usefulness and leadership that an older man may feel like he has to display through outward things. But Paul starts with character because he understands character leads. And so he says, and by the way, older in this definition of the Bible would have been 40 up, right? Because of just how long people lived. And youth was basically into your 30s. So uh, those of you that are in your 30s, love it. You know, love that you're young still. Um, so he says this, and I'm going to run through these, you know. He says, sober-minded. Now that has, there obviously was a problem in Crete of people drinking a lot because he, he, he hits this both with the women and the men. Sober-minded, yes, had to do with alcohol, but it had more to do with anything, any in, indulgence that clouds your vision about the value and weightiness of life. Whatever that makes, for some people, money clouds their vision, right? Career clouds their vision. It's this idea of he's saying anything that takes away your sobriety, you know, where you end up being an older person that watches the Hallmark Channel and your favorite news channel that makes you feel good. He's saying not that. You know, when one of the ways that people that are experts at, at, at um, detecting forgery, whether it's a forged signature or forged art, right? What is it? It's years and years of seeing the original, the valuable thing. And he's saying to older men, live in such a way that you, you are able to say to younger people, I have been through this. I have walked through it, and I can tell you, I see what's valuable. I see you, well, C.S. Lewis would talk about the weight of glory, right? An older man who has lived life for things that matter. That's the vision. Dignified, worthy of respect. That word actually means gravitas. And it's not the, the Dos Equis most interesting man 
in the world, gravitas. It's not the large house, the large office, the tailored clothes. It's not the gravitas of the religious leaders who love flowing robes and seats of honor. That's not the dignity Paul's talking about here. He's talking about the dignity that comes from being uh, spiritually mature, of having the fruit of the Spirit, love, peace, patience, kindness, that sort of dignity. So, uh, you know, when I, Meg and I did youth ministry, and um, I had this wily group of like 14 junior hires. That was my thing. And I used to dread my Tuesday night Bible study because they were bouncing off the walls. I mean, you know, I'd go in there and it'd just be like, Okay, today we're going to talk about, right? And they're like, you know, as soon as they heard it. And so, I, you know, it was so exhausting. One of the dads that volunteered, his son was in the high school youth group. His name was Dick Geegee. Dick. Dick would teach Sunday school, and I don't know what magic power he had, but it was just everybody, including them, was like this. It was just like a gravitas he had. And it wasn't, I'm going to scare you. It was like this warmth, this fatherly thing. And he, a lot of times, just told stories of his life. And then he added scripture, right? It just kind of, it worked. It's that sort of dignity. I've taken up a habit on my birthday, uh, and I have one every five years. Um, <laughs> On my birthday, and uh, it's from a uh, seminary professor mentor that said, on his birthday, he reads Psalm 90. That's the psalm that Moses did, and it says, teach us to number our days. And it actually talks about, like, wrath stuff. It's just this idea of, you know, my years are going. All of us are. And so that becomes my habit on my birthday. Self-controlled, that's been repeated over and over again. I remember years ago, I was with a group of pastors and we were down in Florida. And uh, one of them uh, lived near, you know, there's these massive retirement communities that are around. You might even have some grandparents in them. But he had mentioned uh, the stats of STI and STDs in these retirement communities. Yeah, I was shocked. It's actually rampant. Now, I know it's a little embarrassing. Some of you guys are looking down, but my point is this. I thought in my mind, well, that's, that's like when you're in your 20s. But guess what? Your heart doesn't change just by growing old. If you're driven by desire and lust, and that's your MO, it doesn't matter where you are in life. It doesn't just magically happen. I think I totally eked you out with that illustration. But I just wanted to say it. It was Augustine that said that it's our desires that shape who we become, right? It's what's under the hood. In fact, the way that you can get a, a vision into your desires is your practice. Jamie Smith would call it, what are your rituals? What's your liturgy in your life, your habits? It's insight into your desire and how you're being shaped. And Paul will say to actually every group, and then he'll start off our passage in two weeks, self-control was a big need on Crete. And it's a big need in America. Because we also have this idea that freedom is justice, personal freedom. 
personal expression is justice. Therefore, there's a level of self-control. We've narrowed self-control down to, well, don't do things that hurt people's feelings. But aside from that, I can do whatever I want. And the Bible's reaching for more than that. The Bible would actually say, Paul addresses this in Corinthians when he says, um, you know, yeah, all things are permissible for me, but love rules over them. I'm willing to give up my freedom for the sake of love for my neighbor. Um, And then sound in faith, sound in love, and in steadfastness. And here, if you notice the text, Paul pauses He's almost putting, with, with the, with the uh, insertion of in, he slows down. He's wanting you and I to slow down. And he goes, you know, sound in faith, in love, in steadfastness. And that's because he's starting to hone in on the big three, right? Faith, hope, and love. The big three that guide how God transforms us. The vision that you and I are to have. One person had said this, um, sound faith, love, and steadfastness keep older men from a critical spirit that insists on finding fault. Instead, experience should make them more sympathetic to the struggles of the young, more tolerant of honest mistakes, and more charitable toward differing opinions among believers. Right? This idea of, if I've experienced this, a lifetime of the steadfastness of the Lord. So, one of the things I've loved about doing ministry here, and I'm, I'm coming up on 20 years next um, July. Um, so, when I showed up here, I was, by the Bible standpoint, a younger man. Now, by the Bible standpoint, I'm an older man. Psalm 73 says, uh, you know, I was young, now I'm old. I've never seen the righteous forsaken. One of the things that this type of congregation, one, having people that have always been, like, younger than me. Second of all, a culturally committed, a cross-culturally diverse community. And then being in a city, it has... Every time I want to fall back into, and Meg is constantly saying, we got to fight the grumpies, you know. Actually, she says it mostly to me. You need to fight the grumpies, you know. When, every time I want to fall back into my crusty old white guy and just kind of be there, you guys push me out of it. And so it's been this delightfully just kind of like, you know, years and years of being moved forward not being able to just become a grumpy, critical, look at these people. And I have found that God has brought us older people in the congregation that have just wonderfully been blessed by that. So I want to mention, we don't have a lot of older men, but I want to mention three that I have looked up to. Uh, One was one of our former former elders, Bob Baldwin. Uh, Bob, when I met Bob, he had just retired early in his 50s. And uh, instead of basically doing what he wanted to do, he essentially became like a third pastor. He was an elder. 
he started a sense, his wife, Jean, would say, it was like Bob started a new career. He wasn't getting paid for it. Many of you, your lives have been touched by him. He took his years and he just ran straight ahead for the kingdom of God and of loving people. And when he left a year and a half ago, God's wonderful irony, guess what happened? He moved to a place where there was another church plant. And I had to write the pastor and go, if you're looking for a guy that can be a friend to a pastor, and guess what? That guy was, that guy's already in Bob's life. He's beating him at tennis, which I love. Uh, Because Bob killed me. The second one is David Gatling. Now, David has a long story that's his to tell. But one of the things that David has just really uh, humbled me about is his faithful prayer. There have been different times where he has prayed for our family. And I, I have no doubt that I think all the prayers that were prayed, I think his was the one that pushed us over the goal line. He would pray every day. He would pray specifically. And I was like, man, this is an older guy I can look up to. And he's still feisty. He's still a feisty guy. Um, first time I met him, he was feisty. He came down the, he just came straight down the aisle and just lit me up about something. Um, and the last one is Keith Moore, and Keith is here. Uh, I kid with Keith and say Keith is the hardest working man in showbiz the kingdom. Uh, Keith was on our staff as our accountant, but, but that wasn't even. He he was became a spiritual father, spiritual leader. He and Patty together, ministry, ministry, ministry just over and over again. But I remember the staff meeting where Keith, uh, I think he, he was 66 then. He's still 66, as far as I tell. Either way, he was looking to change, and we were praying. It was on his birthday, and he said, you know, uh, I feel like God is starting. I feel like there's something he's calling me to, something. That something was creating this organization, Auxilio, which now has become this, I mean, it's just like this startup that's going 100 miles an hour. But it, was, it wasn't born out of ambition. It was born out of faith. So God provides us older men to look at and go, praise God. But let me get to the younger men. He does that too. The only thing he says about the younger men, self-controlled. Now, I think for two reasons. One, that's a theme that keeps, we're hearing it with respect to everybody. Also on Crete, it was probably a really big deal. But in general, if there's one thing you could talk to a younger man about, it would probably be that. Self-controlled, right? It's not the only thing. Uh, He also says in um, Timothy, be an example, this is for younger men, of speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. With Peter... The Apostle Peter says, younger ought to be submissive to elders and clothe yourselves with humility. The temptation when you're younger is try to gain respect and standing through boasting and pride and also just kind of yield to your desires and see that as somehow like a, a conquering spirit. And so, 
Paul speaks to younger men by saying, it takes a lot more strength to actually um, be humble. That's not a popular thing in D.C. It takes a huge amount of strength to wait till your time comes, a huge amount of strength to, to be humble in the midst of people that are boasting, and to be able to put my desires on hold. So here's an example of this to give to the younger men. That would be those of you under 40. Um, Jeremiah likely became a prophet when he was 20. And, you know, he was often called the weeping prophet because he was at a tough time in Israel's history, and he got beat on and suffered. He suffered physically in every which way you could because of this, not his own sin, the sin of his people. He also probably wrote Lamentations. And this is what he says. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. It's good to bear the yoke. What he's talking about, one of the hardest things, whether you're a young man or young woman, is when God brings suffering into your life prematurely. Because you look around and you think, no one else is dealing with this. He's actually saying it's a good thing when you're young to bear the yoke. And then he says, let him sit alone in silence when it's laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. Though he causes grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. And so the challenge for a godly young man is can I bear that when the rest of the world's just sort of zipping by? Now, I was immediately thinking of, um, and I've got to wrap this up here because I, I, I want to get to bond, bond servants, which is a whole, I've preached on that as a whole sermon before, and I'm going to tell you I can't, there's not enough time. So if you have more, you'll want more from that, I can give it to you. But let me do this. Um, so those of you that, you know, uh, like the Lord, Lord of the Rings stuff and have watched the films. Um, one of the things I think they do well in the film, in the third film, is uh, rather in, in the whole film. You get the picture with the three hobbits in the tavern before they go on their journey, right? And they're kind of like three frat boys. They're just kind of like you know, drinking it up and having fun and being silly. And then fast forward to the last one after they've gone through their ordeal, and they go back to the same tavern, and they're completely different. There's a seriousness about them. There's a weightiness about them. They just kind of sit there together. And what he's doing, Peter Jackson, is kind of depicting what Tolkien wrote when Frodo said, how do you pick up the threads of an old life? How do you go on when in your heart you begin to understand there's no going back? Show yourself in all respects, or rather, that was from the Bible, sorry, that was the end of the uh, other quote. <laughs> what I'm saying is this. There is, if an, as an older man, a younger man, uh, there is something really 
attractive and something that really uh, commendable about a younger man that can, that's mature before his time because he's endured the yoke that he's had. And I, I've been blessed to know many younger men in this congregation like that. I look at their wisdom and their commitment to God and their commitment to relationships, and I think about where I was at that time. I go, man. And um, one of the things I love, I do weddings, and when you do weddings, you get to be around uh, bridal parties that toast. And to me, I'm always impressed when a guy's group that's standing with him speaks so highly of his integrity and godliness, because they know. They've been with him on the trips. They've been with him, you know, late at night. They've seen him. But when I hear this honor, it's just like, that's, that's a God thing. That's a Christ thing. Amen, that he's calling us to that. So I got to end with this. Um, and by the way, let me just say this. Sin is always trying to, to make you and I sell ourselves short. It's always, one of the words that you find over and over in these passages is dignity, value, respect. Why? Because God has placed that upon you and I. And sin wants to do the reverse. Sin wants to make you trivial. It wants to make you silly. It wants to detract you and eat you up with desires. Idols, right? It, it, idols try to make us themselves. Sin is always out to do that, and God's Spirit is out to do the opposite thing because the vision he has for older and younger men, the vision he has for your life, even if you're a younger man that has to work in a, an oppressing situation like a slave, and I'm going to wrap up with this, um, at this time of the Roman Empire, there, a third of the population was in slavery. Now, it wasn't race-based uh, slavery exclusively like in America, but rather it might, it might be because your nation was conquered. It might be because you were born into that sort of family. It might be economic circumstances. Um, by the age of 30, uh, half the slaves would have received their freedom. And there were slaves as well that held positions in government, high government. There were slaves that uh, ran companies. But there were also slaves that suffered in terrible situations. And by that time, Rome was starting to institute some reforms. But the question is, uh, why does Paul give this sort of instruction? And let me say a really important Bible, Bible principle to hold on to is the Bible doesn't say everything it has to say all in one place, right? You've got to read the breadth of it. And we'll have to really hang on to that next week when we get into this idea of women, their role, submission, stuff like that. And we'll do that next week. But nowhere does the Bible support slavery. Paul didn't support it. Let me just read this. This is from the Old Testament. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. You shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst, in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns, wherever it suits him. You shall not wrong him. 
The book of Revelation, as it talks about the great judgment, talks about the downfall of those that traffic slaves, which is defined as human souls. But how about Paul? Paul says in Timothy, the law is meant for unholy and profane people upon which he lists enslavers. In the book of Philemon, Paul writes to a slave master saying, yeah, I know you have, uh, this man has an obligation to you, but I'm asking you receive him as a brother and that you free him. And of course, Paul would say in the book of Corinthians to slaves, if you can get your freedom, get it. So why wasn't Paul talking about a great revolt? Well, one, he had confidence in the gospel that would one day undo slavery, the Christian gospel. But also, Paul understood that he wanted to build up people in the station of life, in the providence of life that they found themselves in, even slavery. And so he sought to build, and so his words actually convey a dignity, a dignity and a respect to those that were in that position that their culture would have never afforded to them. And so we have to understand that um, not everything is done in God's plan at the same time and in this case. Now, in the end, we don't know why Paul uh, does what he does, but he's speaking to a household in that day where there would have been bond servants or slaves, and he wants to encourage them in their call before God in their role. The vision of society that reflects the kingdom is one about slaves one without slaves. But ultimately, it's about the one who volunteered for slavery, and that's Christ. The great king, the great lord, who is completely free, who we're told in the scriptures becomes like a lowest servant, a slave, washes our feet, lays his life down, is made humiliated, despised, smitten, hidden, Why? So that he would be lifted up for our sake. So this is the one whose character confounds people. It confounds us. It confounds people in our day. And so um, we will continue with this idea next week as we move into good women. Okay? Let's pray. God, we ask that you um, give us eyes to see Christ in, our, uh, in the glory of our gender, in Christ's name, amen.